Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, hosting solo as Jeremy is attending to various paternal duties on this fine Saturday morning. Uh, since the very beginning of the reform and opening era, uh, one of the most fascinating developments in modern China has been in transformation of the news media. Like many other industries, this one has been pushed toward increasing reliance on market forces, subject to the laws of supply and demand, stripped of the state subsidies that it used to be able to count on. Newspapers and magazines had to sell ads. Comfortably monopolistic news media began to compete with one another. Then came the internet, which really operates in very much the same way. Uh, though the internet news media were in China pretty much from their very inception, a creation of the private sector. But China, of course, as we hardly need to remind you, is an authoritarian state. So it's one thing to take the state ownership out of furniture factories or construction companies, but it's quite another to marketize news media, right? After all, the Chinese Communist Party's conception of the role of media has traditionally been, well, very different from the way that other non-authoritarian market economies have tended to see it. It's um, the commanding heights, after all, the whole propaganda apparatus. So it'd be pretty easy to assume that pushing formerly state or party-owned media, like print publications, the radio stations, the television stations, um, what have you, into the marketplace to fend for themselves would be inherently threatening to the party's control of the message. So has the marketization of the media by the Chinese state or by the Chinese Communist Party challenged uh, or subverted the ability to control the media? Um, that is, does marketization mean liberalization, a greater plurality of voices and viewpoints, an abandonment to some extent of the bully pulpit that the Communist Party has enjoyed through media? Uh, that and other questions will be the topic of today's podcast. We are delighted to have with us today someone who quite literally has written a book on the topic. In her first appearance on Seneca, I warmly welcome Donnie Stockman, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Leiden uh, in the Netherlands author of Media Commercialization and Authoritarian Rule in China. Donnie, welcome to Seneca. Thank you, Kaiser. I'm delighted to be here today. Great. So, Donnie, your book makes a, a strong case for, really, I guess, the resilience of the authoritarian Chinese party state. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I'd, I, I'd say so. So, so sure. the, the basic position that you kind of set yourself up against is that there, you know, this belief that the party and the state have lost or are losing control of the discourse as the news media is marketized. You argue instead that that uh, this is not the case, that they've actually found ways to tame the media, in fact, tame even the, the much celebrated and feared new media. So first of all, how widespread is that idea that, that, that market liberalization tends to lead to ideological or journalistic liberalization? Is that what most people kind of assume? Yeah, so I'd, I, I'd say um, originally when I started becoming interested in Chinese media in the, you know, around 2000, 2001, um, the way we looked at Chinese media was very much through the framework of um, the marketization, the increasing reliance on advertising and, and investors in the media leading to greater openness, um, more interesting and also more politically diverse reporting, um, not only in China, but many other countries. So that was your hypothesis. So that was in. originally the, the, the idea that I had. Um, and ah. I got that idea not only through the existing literature at the time, but also from many, you know, from reading the news, um, from uh, and and learning about 
many politicians and also NGOs um, um, opinions on the topic. Yeah, I think it's a pretty common idea, right? I think so. And it does make sort of an intuitive sense. You liberalize the media, you have, you know, you have them competing and and they're naturally going to get more, uh, more bold, right? And, and, and critical. Uh, But that doesn't seem to have happened, right? Um, So So, how, how, what has happened instead in a nutshell? Yeah, so what I found out was that in, in part that was true. Okay. So, um, so a lot of Chinese media, as they um, uh, they started to need to attract, uh, um, they they started to think about audiences mm-hmm. uh, instead of thinking about how they could please officials, uh, mainly because they had to um, to sell their uh, their readership uh, to. Um, companies who would then place advertising in 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 um, media, um, and they also needed to think about audiences much more more strongly because investors ca- cared about those numbers. They right. cared about not only how many readers or or viewers or listeners you had, but they also cared about the kind of people. Right, the you demographics. Attract, right? <laughs> so 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 there did indeed there this shift in thinking amongst journalists really changed. Uh, but then, um, at the same time, what I discovered was that um, the Chinese media is embedded and integrated in a ver- into a very strong um, institutional framework mm-hmm. that still allows the, um, especially the Ch- Chinese propaganda department, the Xuanzhuanbu, to exert a very considerable degree of editorial control over newspapers. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so tell me about this apparatus of control. I mean, we always hear about the Xuanzhuanbu, but there are other... Um, Agencies that I mean, for example, the General Administration of Press and Publication, the State uh, Administration of Radio, Film, and Television, which of course are now mer- merged right. into one super regulator, uh, the the State Council Information Office and SIIO, the State Internet Information Office. So, tell us about the apparatus of control and, and and kind of you know in layman's terms, how does it work? How do they exert control over editorial? Right. So there is uh, state units and there's party units. And the state units um, are mainly in charge of uh, um, controlling the broader structure mm-hmm. of, of, of media. So they control um, whether you can set up um, a new media institution, um, whether you get a license or not. And they um, uh, therefore they can control how many media organizations exist and in what areas, for example. So they are important because they kind of they create the broader environment with, within media can exist. So, um, And what is really important about the structure is that in China, in, at, at least with respect to traditional media, um, media have to find a sponsor. Mm. So this means as a media institution in China, you're not considered to be uh, um, a, a separate institution from the state, but you're considered to be part of the political structure, and that means you have to find a uh, a sponsor uh, who you will be associated with. So you cannot get a license in China without having the sponsor. So and in magazine publishing, that would be like a kan hao, like the the the, the group you, that issues you have your... a uh, kan hao, and then you have a zhu guan dan wei. Okay, zhu guan dan wei, uh, oh. and the zhu guan dan wei decides, especially the ranking of your zhu guan dan wei decides um, what 
which level of um, the propaganda department, so I'm, I'm talking about traditional media now, with which which uh, rank, administrative rank of the propaganda department is uh, you you are subject to. Uh-huh. So this means if you are sponsored by a um, central level institution um, such as China Daily, for example, or Guangmingrupa, uh, you will be subject to the central level propaganda department. But if you are Beijing Rupa or Beijing Wanbao, you are uh, uh, sponsored by a Beijing uh, level uh, um, that institution, that means you're subject to that also that level of the propaganda department. Ah, okay. And Good. and and just to just talk a little bit more about the party side of the structure. So the so um so the party then mainly focuses on editorial control. So there there's a huge um. Um, uh, there's a huge number of staff employed to monitor mm -hmm. uh, media content. And then um, if, if a special report or a certain issue is considered to be sensitive, then um, you will hear about it either through a phone call or you have regular meetings with people from the propaganda departments and you will, as a senior editor working in a traditional media organization, you will you will hear about those guidelines or directives from there. And then um, these directives are then communicated within each media institution to lower, to, to the journalists directly. Uh, I see. So I'm, I'm confused, though. Um, maybe I'm asking an incredibly stupid question, but why bother with media commercialization or marketization anyway, uh, when it seems like you, then you have to, you know, construct this elaborate uh, apparatus and you have to have all of these people engaged in, 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 in you know, reading the editorial content? Why not go back to... Or why, why did they bother to, to open this up in the first place? It's, was it right. a, a, an right. economic decision? Was I think it? that's a great question to ask. Uh, so uh, it was it was um, not that China came up with this idea by themselves. It was that um, in 1978, there was a huge budget deficit. And the previous um, means through which media were financed was mm -hmm. simply not sustainable anymore. So, um, so if you have to completely finance media with state subsidies, uh, in a country like China, that is incredibly expensive, right? Right. So, um, so then you have to start thinking about alternative sources of income to continue to um, to sustain that that media apparatus. Ah, fascinating. Um, so, what would you say are some of the major milestones? You said so in 1978 you had the launch of this. What are some of the major milestones or markers along the way, the chapter markers in the process of marketization of news media over the last few decades? All right. So I'd say um, the first decision was to allow media to experiment with uh, with advertising as an alternative source of income. That happened in the early 1980s. Was that done just at, in one province or in one municipality, and then allowed to spread? Or was yes, it, it was. So so very. They always do that, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so um, so I I think it was a little bit um, it, it was a little bit more uh, vague. Than that, so it wasn't like the central government decided to to first set up special economic zones that could start to experiment, but it was really just uh, encouragement of media in general to come up with ideas, right. and then um, and then some some media organizations. Um, there's 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 a debate in China about uh, which newspaper w w was the first one to to use advertising, but um, uh, so. 
one of them is supposed to be the Guangzhou Guangzhou Rebao, the the Guangzhou Guangdong Rebao, Guangdong Rebao, and in southern China. And um, so that was a major milestone. Um, and then the second, uh, the second major development was to allow investment into Chinese media in the early 2000s. Mm. And still not foreign investment, right? No, not foreign investment. You can so there's a restriction. Chinese media can be funded for up to forty nine percent by domestic Chinese domestic investors, but fifty one percent has to be held by. Um, by the Chinese state originally, but those assets have been transferred into party assets. So actually, Chinese media are owned by the party and not by the state. So when we say state state owned media, we should really be saying party owned media. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that 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 would be true. And I think you know, should China ever democratize, um, uh, the fact that the Chinese Communist Party holds uh, holds most assets of. Uh, Chinese media is going to become very important. Yeah, they'll continue to give the part that party a, a significant leg up. Um, you mentioned uh, that some of the very earliest reforms in, along the marketization route were in Guangdong, and Guangdong province is still sort of the hotbed for some of the most um, critical media, some of the most independent media, specifically the Southern Group. Right, I think that listeners to this podcast are probably quite familiar with with. Uh, the Southern Group, but I think it bears talking about still, you know, who they are and why is it that they have been able to exert, uh, you know, reasonably uh, uh, independent editorial lines. Uh, they're not the only ones. There are also, you know, a few magazines, Caixin and Caixin come to mind, uh, where investigative journalism has been kind of the norm and they, they've been allowed to, to pursue a pretty, in, a seemingly I'm going to caveat that relatively independent uh, agenda. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about why these outliers exist and, and how they fit into the, the the new marketized media landscape? So, um, so I think um, certainly the Southern Group is very important in China because it has a very strong influence on the political discussion and, and public opinion in China in terms of how we discuss Chinese politics. Um, but it turns out that really the Southern Group is an exception within the broader uh, Chinese media environment. What makes it very special um, is uh, are, are several things. Um, so, and I, I'm, and I have to also say that um, uh, some of what I'm going to say is not based on really empirical research, but really based on stories that I heard from sure, journalists and editors actually. who work there. Um, and so, so those factors include um, a mix between the local government being really um, very open and really allowing media more freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may in part have to do with uh, the fact that they are so close to Guangdong, uh, to, to uh, Hong, Hong Kong, Kong right, right. and um, and have a lot of in- interaction, also also in, in terms of um, people traveling in between Hong Kong and, and Guangdong. Um, so because of that, also because the local population is uh, is used to the kind of media from Hong Kong, and people also um, listen and watch and read media uh, that is that are in. Guangdonghua in Cantonese, but from Hong Kong, they also want a 
kind of a different media pro product. So that means these uh, uh, local media also have to, as they think about attracting their readers, they also in part have to compete with media from Hong Kong, right? Mm. Um, and then a third uh, um, uh, specific uh, characteristic of the Southern Group that I heard um, that may be really important is that um, the the staff working for uh, you know Nanfang the Nanfang Zhoumo or Nanfang Rubao, Nanfang Du Shibao and and so forth are uh, have this kind of this uh, this 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 capacity to be really good at establishing establishing contacts uh, with local governments and mm -hmm. they're just mm -hmm. they're really good at networking which helps a lot apparently. Yeah. Absolutely. Fascinating. I mean, I think we could devote an entire episode to them, and we probably will one day. Um, the, the, surely there's some anxiety among, uh, among the media mandarins in Beijing to, as they, they see the degradation of media in this commercialized environment. They, they see uh, a lot of frivolity and a lot of, uh, of sort of tabloid-like reporting uh, a lot of uh, sort of debasement from from I mean the old stodginess of of, of the pre seventy nine period uh, is is there sort of any pushback there is there any kind of uh, concern that that uh, throwing it out there to 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 pander to the whims of of, of the great unwashed has lowered the quality uh, unacceptably of, of of news media. Oh yeah, that's so. That's certainly what a lot of communication scholars here, and also uh, journalists and editors, uh, think. There is a worry that um, the quality of news declines as you uh, become so much oriented towards making a profit. Mm -hmm. And um, there have been um, a lot of incidents of uh, fake news reporting where where journalists just started to make up stories. You, sure. you know, you may remember the fake dumpling case yeah, a couple absolutely. of years ago and so forth. And that is certainly um, a very big concern. Uh, but it's also not something that's specific to China. So that has happened in many other... Right, exactly. Many other countries as well, um, especially as media become more profit-oriented. Um, and um, one way now um, in which uh, media scholars uh, here and also um, editors and journalists want to to change this is to uh, work on media professionalism and 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 tr try to train um, students who will become journalists at, and uh, someday uh, more about um, norms of doing good good journalism but uh, this discussion I have to say is also there's also um, a political side to it because obviously so it's not only uh, the media and the uh, scholars who, who are who are uh, worried about this development but there's also officials involved who become worried about it and sometimes um, when a report is uh, declared to be fake it may actually be true but it uh, could be just very politically sensitive that's right so right so so there so this discussion about rumors in china you know i, I mean sometimes yes there are a lot of rumors and sometimes the rumors are just rumors but sometimes they are um, it's, it's just used to suppress the right. spread of, of 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 real information that's right, right. i mean it's double edged for all i mean for say 
large companies in China and their PR organizations, uh, they may complain about these you know, very bad habits on the parts of journalists expecting, for example, a hongbao to show up to a, a press conference, uh, being able to, you know, basically to control them. Uh, but there's, there's an obvious benefit, whether you're a, a, a government agency or a, a company, to, to be able to to control to, to you know have less independence in the hands of of the media, uh, so yeah, that, I think that it's it's going to be very interesting how this plays out. Um, the, it brings together so many things: the economic you know vicissitudes, the, the, the exigencies that 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 you know these journalists go through. I mean, they're not well paid, and they have all sorts of incentive to be on the take to you know write stories for money, to kill stories for money, and you know to to, to behave otherwise unethically. Uh, very bad problem, uh, very complicated problem. Um, I want to move to the, you know, to some of the case studies at the heart of your book right now. Uh, I think probably the most interesting one uh, is your focus on um, media reporting on something like Japan from 2005 to the flare-ups of the Diaoyuan Sakako Islands in more recent years. Uh, it's something you go into length in in the book. Can you describe for us the interplay between the party state, the marketized media? and public opinion on this particular issue, on Sino-Japanese relations? So when I did my research, um, or when I started doing my research, um, by chance, the anti-Japanese protests happened in uh, 2005. Mm. Um, and uh, at the time, um, in the very beginning, I noticed, because I was also conducting my interviews at the time, I realized that reporters did not consider uh, reporting about this issue to be particularly sensitive. So they told me they can talk about this issue in any way they want. And there were not a lot of directories from the government at mm. the time. Um, and then um, after uh, about a week of protests, that situation completely changed. So then uh, suddenly editors and journalists I was talking to were, were, were starting to complain about um, the fact that they had just received directives, that this had become a very, very sensitive issue. and They, they were told were, to rein it in, to, to they, tamp down. They were, uh, after about a week, uh, they were told that uh, this was a very, um, this, this was a sensitive issue, um, that um, it was an issue of social stability. Obviously, you, you know, you, you don't want to uh, further um, uh, make make citizens angry about this issue, but you sort of want to appease citizens a little bit. And you do that by um, talking less about the subject. So, so then um, newspapers started to all print the same uh, report. They were not, so it wasn't like they were, they were, uh, they were, told to report exactly the same uh, Xinhua news report, but it was kind of the same, uh, the same content. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and it just became less of a, less of a story um, in the news. Over the course and, of just a few weeks, right? Uh, right, exactly. So, uh, so then I started to become very interested because I thought this could, could really help me to understand better the dynamics uh, between um, the, the state media and also public opinion. Well, it seemed and, to you that, that they had stronger levers of control than maybe you had, you had anticipated? I had, so I think I, so, so originally um, uh, I thought the government may 
uh, even encourage media to be very negative, right? right. I didn't expect the uh, the the propaganda department to uh, to try to basically pull news reporting into a positive direction, ah. um, because that's also what you're you you know when you read about um, about these protests in the uh, foreign news media, um, and also when you read the scholarly work on nationalism in China, the impression that we get is that nationalism is very very much as uh, very a much influenced a, right. a product manufactured by the state, right? right? Um, and um, and that the that um, negativity in China towards some countries, um, um, including Japan, but maybe also the uni United States to a certain extent, uh, may be um, encouraged by the by the Chinese state. That's right. So, uh, so I, I started to look into this further, and what um, we also conducted by chance a survey in Beijing. Um, which then allowed me to compare how people who were reading media, uh, different kinds of media, so newspapers, but also uh, TV, and also who they, they were also um, online at the time, how they responded to these changes in news reporting. It was very interesting. I found that um, so so in the beginning, uh, before when when basically when um, when the state didn't inter intervene at all. Uh, media were very negative about Japan, and also public opinion did uh, obviously become very negative. So it kind of followed suit. But then once the government started to try to appease um, public opinion, they uh, the media became much more positive. So they still were not they they were not really positive. They became more neutral. Let's put mm -hmm. it this way. Mm -hmm. So less negative than before. Uh, while um, then. Um, And public opinion. And public opinion also uh, also kind of went along with with uh, they 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 basically media or the strategy of the state was successful uh, and people uh. became less uh, became less negative and kind of followed uh, followed suit um, and very so strong evidence for for a, a, you know skillful management right. Exactly, yeah. uh, but I think what you know what is really significant about this relationship is that, um, much to my surprise, um, the propaganda department, if they give directives about foreign news reporting on Japan or China or, or the U.S., also they oftentimes are asking media to go into a more positive, more neutral direction. Right. So there is not, um, I didn't find any evidence of directives that would ever encourage media to become negative. And so what, uh, it, what instead happens is that if the, perhaps we don't, we, we don't know exactly, you know, what, um, what the official strategy is behind this. And there's different ideas about why this is happening. But, um, but um, if you let media go and, Propaganda department officials are very aware of that. If you just give media freedom in China to report about Japan or also the U.S., um, they will go very negative because mm. that's what attracts readers. Right. Chinese readers, viewers, listeners, they do want to read critical stories, uh, not only also about China. They are not only interested in investigative news reporting, they're also interested in, in, in critical news about foreign countries. That's fascinating. Probably five times already in the course of the four and a half years of this podcast, I've used a metaphor saying that uh, for for Sino-Japanese relations, the leadership stands over a fire pit with glowing embers, with a fan in one hand and a fire hose in the other, 
so that you know they can make sure they can whip up the flame when they want to but never let it spill its banks to mm-hmm. burn in the surrounding countryside which is valuable economic trade relations with Japan uh, I think I need to, to modify this metaphor now that they don't really need the fan at all, do they? They don't need no. They don't need it at all. Right. I mean, this is not to say it. It could be the case in that in the 1990s, you know, there was a lot of education in in in, in at universities, but also in schools, um, uh, and there was a kind of a there, there was a uh, campaign that may have really also influenced this this. Uh, this negative sentiment towards towards other countries. Mm. So it may, you know, in the 1990s, the situation may have been different. But certainly, since I would say, certainly the the early 2000s, this is no longer the case. Well, let's talk about 99. I mean, I had a personal involvement mm. in 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 that uh, after the embassy bombing in early May of of, of 99. Uh, there were a lot of reports talking about orchestration by Chinese state organs uh, of anti-American sentiment but my very distinct sense was that while there may have been you know coordination in the colors of t-shirts people were wearing and things like that and maybe some buses uh it was quite spontaneous um there was a real undercurrent of anti-americanism that was ready to just bubble right up without any encouragement at all well all the scholarly work on this i mean there's uh, usually the common sense is that there it was a mix so it's a mix between you know honest or, or or Organic or, or kind of organic uh, anger, but then at the same time, um, the state also, to a certain extent, um, fed the flames. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Interesting. Um, what about in more recent episodes of Sino-American uh, relations? I mean, that's another part of your book. Do you find that it's similar to Sino-Japanese relations? That uh, it doesn't require encouragement. Right. So the story about so so one of the issue areas I, I look at in the book is um, is how Chinese media report about the United States, um, and then also how how especially readers of Chinese newspapers how they then respond um, to those messages, whether they believe it or not. The other issue area I look at is uh, reporting domestic news reporting about labor issues such as worker protest and discontent, and especially um, legal reporting on 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 labor issues right especially like large factories like Foxconn and things exactly like that. Right, right. exactly um, so uh, but in 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 fact the you know the dynamics regarding uh, news reporting on the US and also how how readers uh, respond to those messages that they receive is, is very much the same as um, the the case with the um, with the, uh, the 2005 anti-japanese protest that we just talked about fascinating uh, one last issue I want to talk to you about before we go to to recommendations uh, is that you know, you seem to believe that there's been maybe too much hype over the ability of new media and social media in particular to actually influence and control the discourse on social and political issues. So what are the techno-utopians, or maybe more charitably we'll call them techno-optimists, what are they getting wrong here? It's not about you know a new public sphere that's shaping discourse, is that not... Oh, okay. So, um, so I have to say, so, so when I when I wrote the book, I was really mostly interested in in uh, commercialization. So I was I was really trying to figure out how does, um, what is the relationship between having these alternative sources of income and then uh, and then the production of news and also uh, to what extent that influences public opinion in right. in China. 
Um, and I focused on uh, newspapers in the book um, and also traditional media because at the time, so that I was doing my research between 2004 and then uh, up to 2009, 2010. Uh -huh. So during that period of time, traditional media um, were still, and to a certain extent, are still um, the most in, most influential in sure, terms of influencing yeah. public opinion. Um, uh, ninety five percent of Chinese watch television, um, and I do not think those numbers will change in the future. Uh, when I was doing my research in the cities, so we're not talking about the countryside now, just in the cities, eighty percent of uh, people living in the cities in China were reading hard copy newspapers. Wow. That's huge yes, absolutely. <laughs> in comparison to many European countries or right. also the United States. I, um, I read them basically only in airplane lounges or on, on airplanes now. I, mean, I, I almost never read a hard copy newspaper. Yeah, I mean, and, and since then, obviously, the number have also, they, they also have declined. Right. Um, but um, so, 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 um, so then in comparison, um, at the time when I was doing the research, uh, only about According to our study, so this is not based on the CNNIC data, which is the official data about internet users in China, mm -hmm. uh, but um, the kind of um, uh, sources, data sources that are in the book come from, um, uh, they come from a mix of uh, qualitative interviews, um, experiments, field experiments, um, and also large surveys that we did. And um all the survey data and the, the kind of survey data that we do um, are really, in my opinion, the best data we have about uh, Chinese media consumption mm -hmm. because we do sample uh, geographical locations in China. So basically, um, you take uh, um, a Google map of, or a Baidu map <laughs> of, um, of China and then you randomly uh, select um, 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 a ge geographical Sense location. You go into the ge geographical location and you just interview everybody who's there at that moment in time. That includes migrants. Mm -hmm. It includes people who have their local hukou and who don't have the local hukou. Mm. So according to those numbers, um, in uh, 2008, only about 20% of Chinese at the national level, so in, so obviously in the cities this number is higher than in the countryside, sure. but in, on the national level at the time in 2008, only 20% of Chinese were online. That's about right, yeah. And um, so the We've CNNIC data is usually yeah. much higher than that. Um, yeah. So I do so I do believe by now, so, so, so then, um, so just to go back to your question, uh, the, so, so I still think, you know, when we talk about media influencing public opinion in China, um, the traditional media are still more important than uh, social media and the internet. But the situation is going to change and it already has significantly changed in many places. So there are certain pockets in China. I mean, we're today we're in Beijing. Yeah. In Beijing, it seems everybody has a smartphone, right? Sure. I mean, probably in Beijing, the, the number of internet users is almost 90% as high sure. as, as yeah, it's about television, right. uh, yeah. as, as people who watch television. Uh, but then there's other places in China where this, this, this That's right. may be much, much lower. So, so, but over time, I think in, in the next five years or so, the situation is really going to change. And then obviously social media and the internet is going to become 
uh, much more important than, for example, hard copy newspapers. I almost feel like social media has already had its heyday and it's gone. I mean, that, I see. <laughs> I mean, they, they it peaked, you know, two thousand nine till mid two thousand thirteen. At which point, it really plummeted. Went over to Weixin, which is not a is so public a forum, and uh, you know, it, it's just not as much the zeitgeist anymore. The zeitgeist right. of. Anyway, fascinating conversation. I, I, and I, I look forward to the, the work that I think we're going to go to lunch now and talk about the, the, the new work that you, you wanted to add. Something? Yeah, I, I just want to add something. So just because we started out with this question, does the commercialization of media or maybe also now we're talking about digitalization and the Internet in China, mm -hmm. does that lead to greater opening of media or does it allow states to... Uh, still exert a very considerable uh, amount of control over media. Um, so, so what I concluded after doing this research for over 10 years now is that that's not the way we should ask the question. Ah, oh. So the question is not about whether media are becoming more open or controlled, but the fact is that those processes can happen simultaneously at the same time. So... Um, so in the book, I call this responsive authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. um, so we see in China constantly, we see this push towards media becoming more open because they have to think about audiences, but then also the state constantly trying to adjust these structures through which these infrastructures and resources through which they are trying to, uh, or the state is trying to influence the content of media. Um, and the question is then, when, when do these two forces get out of balance? So at the moment, so we, we we started out by saying at the moment, still Chinese media are, they can be guided in certain directions that are beneficial to the Chinese Communist Party. But this is only the case because these two forces are balanced with each other. Mm -hmm. um, however, there it it could happen in the future. I don't think this is very, very soon going to be happen, to be honest. <laughs> um, but, um, but it is possible that, um, you know, if you, for example, if there's a major economic crisis, you can no longer fund uh, this huge infrastructure behind media, or let's say uh, the, the the party is uh, is very divided, and and the party cannot give clear directives to media anymore. Um, that then uh, one um, the forces that push media into into a more open direction uh, start to become more influential. Yeah, so, uh, that that so second scenario is a more likely one. Uh, very, very. I mean, we've seen. I think uh, uh, there's been speculation, but certainly we've seen leadership schisms uh, in the past, like in 1989, when that was certainly the case. Look what happened in media. When, when in inter, inter party struggles, when you had sort of supporters of Zhao Ziyang and uh, supporters of, say, let's call him Li Peng, conveniently, uh, really diverged, and you had two very different media lines coming out of, mm -hmm. of, of a still very heavily right. state controlled media then, or party controlled media then. Fascinating. That's, uh, I, I highly recommend everyone look at the book again. Uh, the, the title of the book, just to, to remind everybody, is Media Commercialization. And authoritarian rule in China. The author, Donnie Lockman, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Donnie Stockman, uh, is a, uh, a scholar, again, uh, a professor of political science at the University of Leiden. And uh, we hope that you'll come back and uh, talk to us again next time you're in town. Thank you. Would be delighted. Yes. So 
before we leave, we do have this habit of making recommendations. And so I was wondering what you have to recommend for our listeners. It can be, you know, something about China, something not about China, something that just might be of interest to our listenership. Yeah, so so something I noticed uh, coming back to China this time uh, was that not only the new leadership is uh, stressing uh, the informatization and digitization of Chinese society, but uh, actually, um, this is this is very visible. You know, you every, everywhere you go, you see people um, using their smartphones and um, um, using uh, those online apps all the time. Produce a huge amount of data that yeah. I think is really going to change the way that we uh, understand China because it just gives us access to understanding behavior of Chinese society in, in, in many new, exciting ways. And so uh, because we're talking about media today, I want to I want to uh, my recommendation uh, today is uh, a website called uh, a five minute field guide to data journalism, which gives a very hands on um, or gives a lot of hands on recommendations to um, how to use those data uh, in media. That's great. You know, this is a theme that I, I every time I get a chance to speak to uh, journalists, or I, I did this recently at a, uh, a a meeting of news assistants. I, I push use of data uh, because you know, of course, I work for Baidu, as everyone who listens to the show by now knows. And you know, we've been doing big data before they started calling it big data. I'm looking at a slide right now that I wanted to show to you how it is that you know all of these devices in our lives, the wearable technologies, the sensors, we're swimming in data. Uh, I have a proje- projection here from IDC that sees by the year 2020, we will be, we'll have uh, about 40 zettabytes of, of, of data volume floating around uh, in our world. It, and it, if you look at the shape of the curve here, on this, I mean, it's wow. This is, so this is not big data. This is, this is this really is big data. data. Right? Yeah. It's mega data. It's, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> huge. Well, thanks. It's a terrific recommendation. Um, mine, actually, uh, I, I keep getting criticized because we haven't done something thoroughly on, uh, on Hong Kong. And I, I suppose one one of these days we'll, we'll we'll get to it if we can find the right guest, the right angle, and so forth. But in the meantime, please read a very very good piece uh, in foreign policy under the Tea Leaf Nation section by Rachel Liu, who's been a guest on this show. It's simply titled "Resistance is Futile," uh, and subtitled "Beijing is Emerging as the Big Winner from Protests that Have Left Hong Kong's Social Fabric in Tatters." Uh, it talks about you know that th- that's in poll seventy percent of the Hong Kong populace is is opposed to uh, it to to occupy and to the students. It talks about the schisms that are that are now starting to show up within the movement uh, over the controversy, for example, of the surrenders that some of the occupy leaders engaged in uh, over the hunger strike that Joshua Wong and others are now engaging in. It's it's a very good uh, piece. Depending on your perspective, you may end up being very depressed or very relieved, but uh, it's certainly worth reading. And uh, I will look forward to seeing Jeremy back in the saddle again, and uh, we'll see you next week on the Seneca Podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye.